Hey guys, we're going to be doing our second round of casual correspondence here, the second for the season. It'll be coming out on December 2nd. So stay tuned on social media. There's going to be places for you to ask questions to the podcast about the podcast, about Daniel and I, about filmmaking, about some of our previous reviews. Whatever you want to ask, we are more than happy to answer. We had a lot of fun with the first one. So stay tuned for that on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast. Warning, this narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are Casually Critical. So before we start this episode proper, we have a bone to pick. Well, you guys actually seem to have quite the bone to pick with us. Yeah, uh, the most internet traffic we've received in this season's slew of uh, recordings was our Rings of Power episode, which many of you were disappointed that we did not continue to watch. You don't understand. I know it's like eight hours, but the season finale is worth it. There are rings. There are rings later. You're wrong. You know. <laughs> That's not really what you sounded like. Some of you had some really intelligent arguments to make. Mm. And I did say I would be going on to kind of quietly watch Rings of Power yes. on the side and maybe... Uh, keep Daniel updated, but I think we might we might change our plans for Rings of Power mm. since we've gotten so much feedback. I mean, you know, sometimes you just got to follow the engagement, and you guys gave us a lot of it. You guys had a lot of facts and logic and opinions, very strongly so. Uh, at work, uh, whether it's on work or off work, you guys have made it known to me in person that um, I'm wrong. And I respectfully say, maybe I'll need to see it. I'll need to see the rest of it. So maybe, uh, maybe a part two is in the works. James, what do you say? I'm down for it. Stay tuned for our next Rings of Power review, reviewing the first season and the show as a whole. That sounds great. Let's uh, jet on over. Jet on over to, to Top, Top Gun, Gun Maverick. Maverick. Hello, and welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I am your host, James Newton. And I'm Daniel Carpenter, your co-host. Right now, we're flowing pretty low to the ground. Um, we're going to be covering um, non-spoilers. And then later on, as we fly up into the sky, we're going to encounter spoilers and enemy fighter jet. You know what? We're just going to talk about Daniel, there's a spoiler on your six. Oh, no. Uh, Get him off my well, tail. Okay. He's gone for now. He'll be back later, though. So... While he's gone, let's talk while spoilers aren't in the airspace. Phew. This is off to a great start. James, I wanted to discuss something. Well, frankly, we both did. That's why we organized this podcast. Let me try that again. <laughs> <laughs> James, we're talking about an interesting um, topic today. That is the legacy sequel, um, which seems to be a trend now. Our cinema largely features nostalgia bait, features 
a lot of callbacks to things, a lot of obscure crossovers. And through that all, we have a new phenomenon of the legacy sequel, which is something you coined, which I think is quite perfect. Uh, that's a sequel that doesn't come out a year after the movie. It doesn't come out two or three years. It comes out several decades later, and it attempts to weave together a narrative that references and yet builds on the original film it was based on. And I think there's a lot of misfires that can happen. There's, uh, you've got uh, movies like Jurassic World and, and other films. Ghostbusters Afterlife. Ghostbusters Afterlife, but then you also have Tron Legacy, Force Awakens, a lot of other, a lot of other stuff like that. So, right out of the gate, James, what do you, where do you think Top Gun Maverick falls in that spectrum of legacy sequels? This is one of those movies that doesn't apologize for what it used to be. Maverick in the first Top Gun movie is quite the character. He's a reckless. Well, he's a maverick. I mean, that's why I think that's where he got his name from is he's he's single minded. He's reckless. He's um, he's not afraid of anything. And that doesn't change. That doesn't evolve in the time between the movies. Maverick remains exactly the same. And for that reason, he's still flawed in the same ways. But as we have these new storytelling techniques, these new focuses that the, the new techniques that these filmmakers are focusing on and fleshing out in characters and in plot lines, those the flaws and the things that didn't change from the first movie still fit. They still feel good. Hmm. What do you think? Following Maverick as he is still the same rank that he was and uh, testing out fighter jets, and then something happens which brings him back to Top Gun, not as a student this time, but as an instructor trying to train these young pilots on uh, this new mission and following his journey and their journey through that. I, I walked into this movie having heard all the hype. People said, ah, there's no politics in this movie, Daniel. It's a really solid film. I don't know why I'm sounding like a 1930s broadcaster, but I am. Yeah. There's no political agendas in this one, see? <laughs> it's a solid movie, see? Even a filmmaker like yourself can enjoy a thing like this. <laughs> a moving picture. <laughs> but In stunning sepia tone. <laughs> and Cinemascope, brought to you in live Technicolor. <laughs> we'll just have the rest of this uh, review be in 1930s. How about that? How about we'll that? just be transatlantic uh, boxing announcers for the rest of the rest <laughs> of time. But this moving picture, I got to be honest, fit the bill almost perfectly. This is a movie that reminds me a lot of Encanto. It's just really solid all around. The camera work, the lighting, and the sound. But... Also, the story, the characters, there's a lot more surprising subtlety and nuance than I was expecting to see in a war jet sequel to a nostalgic movie that happened about 30 years ago. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I think what I was trying to say earlier is that all of the good stuff about movies has been sprinkled on all of the old stuff about movies that was good. And that's what makes this such a wonderful legacy sequel because we don't 
we don't make fun of what Top Gun used to be. We don't make fun of what Maverick used to be. It's right. still all very serious, and things things haven't changed for better or worse. And I guess we'll get into that a little more in the spoiler review. But one of the best things that this movie brings to the table is the aerial shots, the cinematography, the flying, like the aerial combat choreography. Oh, yeah. It's, it's gorgeous. There is a smoothness and an elegance, not just the storytelling, but as you were saying, to the aerial choreography, to the cinematography. I, I do not know off the top of my head how they filmed it. There's several different techniques they could have employed, but I know that largely this was using real jets and real pilots, and it's, it's breathtaking to behold, and how they integrate the amount of G-forces that, the amount of Gs that our characters experience and how that affects certain things. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. That being said, it never feels like it draws too much attention to itself. I will say if there is one flaw, though, I will say a fundamental part of action sequences in general is spacing. I want to know where the characters are at all times. That's why a lot of terrible action movies typically feature an abundance of shaky close-ups, and it cuts yeah. to a lot of close-ups. And you don't quite know what's going on because you don't know where people physically are in space. Um, one reviewer touched on this in, in a review on Lord of the Rings, which I actually, it stuck with me. And that's this idea of gestalt theory. You're seeing fragments of a shape and you're able to put together a piece of puzzle in your head. So what does this look like for action sequences? Well, for Lord of the Rings with these big battles, if you want to convey this idea that the good guys are losing, you'll show a series of random shots of good guys falling to the blade of the enemy. And mm. you get enough of those random shots, you go, oh, so the good guys must be losing. You get a lot of shots of the good guys winning, killing random bad guys, you get a sense that the good guys are winning or holding their ground. So So you feel like you feel like Top Gun you have trouble piecing together the stakes and what's actually going on in aerial sequences. See, I think the storytelling is actually the strongest. It helped me stay focused and helped me know the direction the battle was going. What it was hard for me was I often lost where the good guys were in space. Mm. I'm like, okay, so I know the enemy's coming up behind him cuz he says something like that. I know that he's nervous and scared and the enemy has the advantage, but I don't know how close that enemy is to getting to him. You know, I don't yeah. know where I, I, and here's the thing. The movie does this. There's a lot of wide shots. So I'm able to say, okay, now I know, but then it's really easy for me. As soon as they turn their planes or do a maneuver, I'm like, okay, now I, I get lost again. Remind me where they are in space. That That's a minor gripe because the story holds that together for me. And I assume filming in the air is a challenge in that in any regard. Yeah. But it was still a nitpick that I have. I think I do agree with you, Daniel, but I also do want to defend the nature of aerial combat and like the way it feels to be in a cockpit because mm. you can only see 40% of your field of vision because an airplane is blocking you off and your spotter mm. in the back is like telling you where everything is. So I wonder if some of it was deliberate, maybe to defend the cinematography. Some of it might have been deliberate to feel like, oh, we're getting a lot of like really up-close shots. You know, like in a horror movie, when we just get this really long close-up of the protagonist walking towards the camera, we can't see any of their surroundings, and it's just this claustrophobic, suspenseful feeling. I right, wonder if right, that right. method is sort of brought into this movie, 
where like, I don't know, for example, Tom Cruise just doesn't know where the bogey is because he's limited to this little tiny pocket in space and he has to focus on maneuvering a, a ship, not a ship, yeah. a plane. Yeah, I see your point there. I think that's all. That's definitely a good argument. I would say my that one gripe I just talked about, the spacing of the action, it's a minor thing because I want to be clear and I want to underline this verbally. It did not compromise the film-watching experience for me. Mm. I still enjoyed it. The action was still gripping. I was still, it did not take me out of the emotion of the moment. It did not interrupt the momentum that was being built up dramatically. So I think you're right, James. If, they, if that was their goal, I think it did kind of work. I wish there was more consistency. There's still some wide shots that they do do. Do do. <laughs> but <laughs> this is a <clears throat> professional podcast where we uh, <clears throat> get very intellectual. But all that being said, overall, this is just a really solid movie for better or worse which I can't wait to seek our teeth into in our spoiler review. But before we do, James, I want to touch all the way back to the beginning of our conversation where we mentioned the legacy sequel. We mentioned a few examples of legacy sequels already, James. So I'm curious to know, given that this is a relatively new development in filmmaking and storytelling in general, what are some pitfalls that legacy sequels can typically fall into that this movie doesn't and does? Hmm. Well, one that I already mentioned is that they they make fun of their previous their predecessors and say, oh, that was made in the 80s. So we can poke fun at that movie made a while ago. I think a common pitfall is preserving our heroes and making them a brand. I think mm. Maverick is a brand, but he's a very. A very damaged and stained brand. I don't think there was a whole lot staked on, oh, we got to make sure the character of Maverick is prestige, like prestigious, and like he's an amazing legendary character. Um, yeah. Daniel, you mentioned a little bit when we were talking about this before recording that like no one said, oh, you're the famous Maverick. They yeah. do something else. And we'll once again talk about that more later. But they don't, they aren't overly nostalgic about themselves. And they also aren't overly tongue-in-cheek about themselves either. I totally agree with that. I think another pitfall that legacy sequels can fall into that this one doesn't is, as we mentioned in The Sea Beast, it doesn't punish us for what we want to see. Mm. This movie, and I'm looking at this not from a storyteller perspective, I'm looking at this from a marketing perspective. This is a movie that tailors largely to men. This is a movie about big war jets. This is a movie about pew, pew, pew. This is a movie about... Dude, I love pew, pew, pew. Dude, me too, me too. There's, there's definitely a space for it. But this movie doesn't go, oh, you want to see those innocent enemy fighter planes get blown up and those people trapped inside. You, you, you... sick monster. <laughs> no, it says, yeah, no, we know that you've come to see this and you're not evil for it, but let's texturize that it's not all good but it's not all bad and they i think they do a really good job at knowing when to pull on that and when not to i gotta say a special shout out there is a female pilot character in here but she does feel for better or worse like one of the boys she's competent but she's not hyper competent she isn't just better than everyone 
there is no female character or minority character that's challenging Maverick as a pilot who's like, yeah, I'm just as good. You're just a washed up old so-and-so, you know, but I'm going to try and be better than you because I'm the best. It's like, no, that's not, that's not the dynamic here. They're not punishing you for rooting for Maverick. What they're doing is they're tastefully challenging the notions of the character and the world that he fits in. The character Phoenix that you're referring to. Right. I also think it's, it's wonderful that she doesn't stake all of her self-worth in being better than the boys. I think that that's something that could very easily happen in a movie like this, where we're in the Top Gun program, we're competing for who can be the best pilot. She's just want, she just wants to be a good pilot. She doesn't stake everything on, well, I'm a woman and they're men and I need to surpass that. For the rest of the ladies out there, wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah, it's not super charged politically. It's a solid story and they largely keep their conflict internalized, which it's a shocking turn for a legacy sequel. Most legacy sequels get bigger and badder. And as you said, I think very brilliantly so, they preserve the hero. They poppy guard the hero. It's like, no, no, don't. Don't hurt Maverick, he's awesome. Or they become largely deconstructionist about their hero and go, yes. yeah, he's pretty bad. He's old school. So let's uh, let's give him some good scenes, but let's largely just crap on him the entire time. Let's usher in the new hero that we can make the right. main icon of our franchise. The main money make, I mean character in this <laughs> narrative. So overall, well done. I want to wrap up this non-spoiler section and just say, out of five stars, I'd give this a four and a half. I think this is personally a film that isn't my normal cup of tea, but I really enjoyed. And if someone ever suggested watching this again, I would be on board. It's not a perfect film. We're going to touch on that more in our spoiler review. But James, what would you rate this film as? I would give it a four out of five stars. And I think for mm. a lot of the same reasons. I really oogled and ogled over the IMAX experience that I got a couple months IMAX. back whenever I saw this. Oh, that's it was, awesome. It was so great. And I, if I could recommend somebody to go see this movie again in IMAX sometime, uh, please do it because it's terrifying and fun <laughs> and fast. And my stomach dropped so many times. But there is a lot lacking in terms of challenge. To the viewer, mm. as we talk about in this in this uh, in this podcast a lot, there's a lacking in depth in that in that regard, I suppose. But the story doesn't sidestep that; it just focuses on its characters. Yeah, it's it's kind of like what Dan talked about in our previous episode on God's Not Dead Four. This isn't really a movie that grows you. Yeah. I don't know necessarily if anyone can grow from seeing this movie. I don't think anyone would suffer from this movie, but let's let's go into our spoiler view so we can discuss more of that. Want to join the conversation? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast to get the inside scoop on future episodes. Feel free to message us on either platform to join in the casual correspondence or provide feedback on the show. Now it's time to dive into our spoiler review. So, James, in our conversation, when we were talking earlier about this film, before we recorded, I mentioned that if I was to liken this movie to food, which I seem to be doing a lot more of, by the way, this might be my gimmick now, I'm not sure. Everyone check your bingo boxes. <laughs> Minions 2, we compared to candy. And I think a lot of other movies in a similar vein are like marshmallows. They're fluff and they're unhealthy. 
this movie is a lot like bread. Uh, not because it's like, let's get this bread, but because it's a lot of calories. And I think it's needed in a lot of food. Like a lot of food will incorporate carbs from bread. This movie is dangerous, not because of what it is on its own, but because if this is all you consume, you're going to fill your body with not enough nutrients. And I think that touches on what you were talking about, this lack of a challenge, this lack of, of growth. Where do you think that largely comes from? I think largely it comes from this movie knowing what it wants and accomplishing exactly that and not trying to get too big for its britches, which mm. I got to hand it to the people that made Top Gun Maverick. They didn't try to say, well, we have a platform. We should probably say something about the housing crisis in Botswana. Um, they, <laughs> they said, this is a legacy sequel and people have expectations. Let's blow those expectations out of the water by saying, no, let's not subvert their expectations, but let's give them everything they want. Just bumped up to an 11 out of 10. Just like mm. give them so many cool Maverick moments. Give them so many cool plain plain moments give me give them really cool like relational stuff going on with maverick exploring his character because everyone likes maverick and they do that and they don't step anywhere beyond that mm. and that's okay but i think you're right that shouldn't be every movie yeah something else that i noticed is james a lot of our conversation has trickled into uh i think quite naturally because of just this is the world we live in. These are the movies we see. There's a lot of talk about diversity and representation and inclusion, whether it's of minority races, whether it's LGBTQ, it, all of these factors, regardless of how well they sit with our values are things we need to consider. You know, there need, there's a deliberateness now. What do we keep in and mention in our movies and what do we exclude? And this movie a lot of people talk about that this is a very non-political film. I don't necessarily immediately think that that's a good thing. At the same time, I don't think that's a bad thing. But what I have noticed is this movie does feature characters that are different races. None of those different race characters are major players in this movie. This movie also doesn't reference the sexuality of any character except for Maverick because it is something that was already established in the first movie. So it doesn't really break any new ground or explore any of that. But my, my question is, do movies need to do that? Do they have to have a major player who's a minority character? Because I feel like some people might say, oh, okay, they clearly had, did that for diversity. Does every movie need to have a gay kiss that's a brief cutaway shot that they can easily edit out for foreign releases? Oof. I don't know. Depends on the objective of your movie, Daniel. Hmm. It really depends on the objective. If you want to make somebody think with your movie, which I think we generally praise movies for challenging the way you and I think, hmm. um, whenever it's handled well, then absolutely, I think you should you should poke and prod and 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 push boundaries. But if you're checking a box for the sake of earnings for the sake of scoring certain points with certain kinds of people that's called capitalism actually 
That's not <laughs> that's not filmmaking at all. That's called capitalism. And that's saying, what's our target audience? Let's make sure that we give them something to to really chew on. Something mm. um something that they'll really like and something that will really make them say, wow, that was such an activist movie. Yeah. So if we're not trying to be capitalists and play it safe so we can appeal to the widest possible audience, which again, I think playing it to the wider audience, I think partially is a smart move. But if that's all you're doing, you're a capitalist. You're selling out the story for marketing. But if you do it the opposite way and you're 100% avant-garde, and you say, if you don't watch this, you're a racist, you're a sexist, you're a misogynist, you're a bigot. If you do all of that, then you're just an edgy boy. You're not really being sensitive to and caring about your viewer and navigating them through the uncomfortable space. You're just throwing a lot at them and expecting them to take it or run away. So if I don't want to be a capitalist as a storyteller, if I don't want to be an edgy boy how do I ride that line? And I don't know if that's a question that you can satisfactorily answer, James, but at least what are some rules of thumb that we've seen in this movie and possibly in our previous reviews? Well, this movie definitely has things in it that are not just brainless ac action sequences and then the characters talking to lead to the next brain brainless action sequence. Mm. There's some really clever stuff um, included in here that that give characters moral responsibility. Um, I love how Maverick is called to uh, Top Gun and how he's challenged at every corner and how his legacy is not as a really great pilot, even though he's a reckless son of a gun. Yeah. He's dangerous and he's got a bad reputation because of that. I really like to see that in my movies. I like to see that this this natural thing that was viewed as a strength for the most part in his first movie is now starting to come out as a ghost that's chasing him in the second movie. Yeah. And that really manifests itself in Rooster, the son of Goose, um, as just an organic way for Maverick to confront who he used to be. And him coming to terms with that, and also with the relationship with Penny, really helps us gauge how our character is growing without completely uprooting who he is without saying this was a toxic eighties action hero. Yeah. They do such a good job. Every single barrier Maverick encounters in this movie is something that challenges or questions his character. The fact that he would not have gone to top gun had it not been for a life saving call from Iceman. The fact that he was about to be fired were it not for that phone call. The fact that he loses Iceman, which is not really a personal loss. It is for his character. It's not for me as a viewer. I don't really care about Iceman, but I do care about how Iceman has been the only one holding Maverick back. And now he's gone. I don't feel like the writers ever play it safe. Quite the opposite. They throw mm -hmm. Maverick in with the wolves and they say, okay, dance. Let's see what you can do. They make him suffer in reasonable ways that make us concerned for him. He loves flying. That's all he does. Now he's an instructor, but he still has to hold back a little. His COs, his commanding officers, I thought first, okay, well, they're going to be the typical, you know, slap him on the wrist and say, Maverick, don't do that again. You know, but instead there's reasons for why they do that. They say, Maverick, 
you you jeopardize the safety of uh, the people under you. You jeopardize the safety of the pilots. These are the best of the best, and you're playing with their lives, essentially. Uh, Maverick sees that they need to be more prepared for the mission. Towards the end sequence, Maverick hijacks a plane and then just does the entire maneuver exactly as he wants his um, his pilots to do it. The CEO has an interesting conversation. He isn't just like, all right, Maverick, you win. He says, Maverick, I am either, I am in a difficult position because either I fire you and look bad or I keep you and risk my career. You have also damaged a multi-million dollar plane beyond repair. And I go, shoot, they're reminding us of the consequences. Maverick can still be Maverick, but it has consequences. Someone or something suffers every time he does it. And I think that's a smart way of saying, well, we're not going to completely celebrate what Maverick does. We're not punishing him for it either, because what he's doing is going to keep his pilots safe and keep the mission going. It's a very balanced way of looking at it. From a moviegoer's perspective, we want to see Maverick do crazy, daring stunts in the sky. Yeah. But also we're conflicted because we know what he's doing is destructive to himself and everyone else around him. Yeah. So it's, it's a fun little fun little bind that we're put in in this movie as he as he brings up the next generation is he going to foster them into hit the same reckless um attitudes that he had or is he going to grow as a person mm. and as a leader uh in order to benefit everyone around him yeah not just himself even the character of penny i want to mention briefly i like the character of penny because Normally in legacy sequels like this, the main character and this fling or his girlfriend in the first movie that he has, they're usually, oh, together or they're married and the plot revolves around, okay, well, they have marital problems. You know, they're, they're not doing as well as they used to. In this one, the character of Penny challenges Maverick in the sense of, He's unable to just settle down. He's unable to stay in one place, which is funny because the entire plot revolves around him staying in one place as this instructor. The one scene they have is the sex scene, which I call to attention because normally in movies, those are completely expendable scenes. They're in there just for the tickets. They're in there because, you know, oh, you want to see this, so here you go. Enjoy. Uh, but no, it's very tasteful. And to my surprise, purposeful, because at the end of that scene, it's like, oh, no, my daughter's here. We got to go. And it's like they're acting like teenagers around her young daughter. And as Tom Cruise does his parkour, even though he's an old man and Tom Cruise finally gets to do his Tom Cruise stunts and jump off the roof, he lands. Had to get out that obligatory Tom Cruise does his own stunts <laughs> thing. Right. Check that yeah. off the bingo card. <laughs> he, he lands in front of her daughter. And at first it's comedic. It's like, oh, ha, ha, hoo, hoo, hee, hee. But then she says to him, don't run away again. And the writers just touch on the heartstring. They touch on this deeper theme of Maverick's a runner. It's good for him in piloting because he pushes himself. He's always going fast. He's always going faster. Gotta go fast. But it's also a detriment because from a character perspective, He's never pushed himself in terms of his career or his character. He's always stayed as a captain. He's always stayed in one place. He's a daredevil in the sky, but on the ground, he actually plays it quite safe. And I love that balance. It's so interesting. 
I wholeheartedly agree. And I think the character of Penny is, is great because she's not... I do think the movie evolved from the first one in this way of she exists outside of the character of Maverick. Mm. She passes all of the Bechtold tests or whatever where yeah. uh, a female character is solely exists to uplift the male character. Right. She does exist in a lot of ways to challenge Maverick, but also you can tell like her life is wonderful and is thriving and she's taking quite the risk to take on Maverick again. So there's also just like, I don't know, when I, when I was watching the movie, there was fear of like, well, shoot, what if Maverick hurts this amazing and smart and like funny uh, woman and her daughter? Uh, it's, it's really nice that we get to see, we get to spend a bit more time with our, with our main love interest in this film. Yeah. So Daniel, I think it's kind of weird because this movie in some ways is a really big commercial for In the Heights because... I see the main character's name, Usnavi, just everywhere. <laughs> U.S. Navy. <laughs> and, and they don't seem to be pronouncing it right either. And they don't sing a single song and it doesn't take place in New York. So it's just really disconnected to me. Uh, what are your thoughts? This is the weirdest In the Heights sequel. In the Heights, <laughs> except not on the Heights, but in the literal Heights, the sky. In the skies. It's New Heights, literally. Um, in the Sky Heights. <laughs> We go to blow up every day in the heights. Fly our war jets bills to pay. I don't know. <laughs> See, we'll write the songs. We'll make this a musical. Just wait when the third one comes out. If it comes out, if there is a third one, I don't know. Don't get excited. Listener. I'm sorry if I planted a fake news in your mind. Top um, Gun three. Uh, Tom Cruise in his first musical role. Can't wait to see how that goes. Did you know Tom Cruise does his own songs? Yeah. Did you know that? He sings his own songs. You know, it'll be Top Gun, Top Billing. That will be the <laughs> that'll be the sequel. But in all seriousness, Dang. with the abundance of Uznavi or the U.S. Navy or whatever you like to call it, the U.S. Navy and frankly all the branches of the military have this thing where they play really nice with films that want to use their equipment or are based in the military or the Navy. They'll help you out. They'll help um, give you the uh, vehicles you need, the uniforms. I don't know if this is factually true, but they might supply you with some soldiers for background purposes if you need them for anything. They really play nice with entertainment, but there are some conditions that come with it. Namely, they have a say in what can be included and not included in the story. And I want to be clear, that's not just the U.S. thing. That's not Uzanavi. That's also, uh, <laughs> that's any company that gets some say in the story through lending them their product. Um, you do I.e. Subway in community. <laughs> Which I will say is probably one of the greatest product placement uh, <laughs> plot-related things of all time. But... I have two different trains of thought with that type of thing, with that type of funding, because one train of thought is this. I am not bothered by that for this movie. This movie does a great job of, um, it doesn't, I don't ever feel it censors or keeps some things on the down low because the story does not need those things to be in there. Questioning authority. There's questioning authority, but it's reasonable. It's within the world. But then there's the second train of thought. The one that isn't related to this movie. The one that goes, okay, but as a principle, 
how do I feel about this type of funding, this type of say? And I think it goes back to what we already talked about, which is this movie is great, but not every movie should be this movie. Not every movie like this is going to challenge you. This is the exact textbook definition of a movie where you can walk out and go, eh, that was a good flick, and then walk away. You know? Because you can walk away. You have the thrill, you have the experience, but you don't have the story. There's room in other movies to say, maybe the U.S. Navy's or whatever organization has ulterior motives, and we should dive into that. And should we always trust our military? Should we always trust our corporations? Should we always trust our government? Mm. This movie doesn't do that, but it's not only because the Navy had a financial chokehold on this movie. That's kind of dramatic. Yeah. It's not because the U.S. Navy had a stake in the production of it as a promotion to bring in new recruits, but it's because it was about Maverick. And his defiance and his running up against authority is totally baked into his character and established back in the 80s. Right. And any any flaws that manifest themselves within the U.S. Navy are Maverick-based flaws. Yeah. They're not the establishment of the U.S. Navy being a problem and their naval, their naval pilot program. It's Maverick. It's his attitude. It's his trauma and his grief informing his reckless, either overly reckless or overly hesitant behavior. Hmm. I think that's a great note to end on. So without further ado, we're Daniel and James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Great. <laughs> Get down, get down, get up, uh, fly around. <laughs> <laughs>